it's time for the Des Moines Register on Monday, March 18. I hope you all had a good St. Patrick's Day yesterday. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. My name is Twyla Glenn, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Nicole Tam. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer Voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and headlines from today's Des Moines Register. According to AccuWeather across the state, we can expect mostly sunny skies today, cold in the south, winds northwest 10 to 20 miles per hour. Tuesday, breezy with abundant sunshine, winds northwest 12 to 25 miles per hour. And the forecast for the next few days in central Iowa looks like this. Today and tonight, a high of 40 and a low of 34. Mostly sunny with winds northwest 10 to 20 miles per hour. Clear Monday night with winds southwest 8 to 16 miles per hour. On Tuesday, sunny, breezy, and warmer with a high of 58 and a low of 31. On Wednesday, a high of 47 and a low of 28, partly sunny. And on Thursday, should be cloudy with a high of 49 and a low of 36. Looking at precipitation in the 24 hours through 4 p.m. Saturday, there was zero. Our month to date has been seven-tenths of an inch against a normal for this time of the month of one inch. Our year to date has been 3.3 hundredths of an inch against a normal of three and 48 hundredths of an inch. Last year on this date, we'd had 4.91 inches of precipitation. And the forecasters seem to think that we're through with snow for the year because there's no more snow tracking in our weather report. Sunrise today was at 721 a.m. Sunset tonight at 725 p.m. Moonrise today at 1255 p.m. And moonset today at 4.18 a.m. Turning now to the front page of the Des Moines Register, there's a banner that reads, The Field is Set for NCAA Basketball Tournament. Brackets are also set. And there are a lot of, uh, there's several Iowa teams going to be playing in those tournaments, and you'll hear all about that when we get to the sports in the second shift of this, today's broadcast. Turning now to the headlines, will Iowa lose more meatpacking plants? And an Iowa poll exclusive, 73% back an in-state tuition constraint. And an article from out of St. Paul from USA Today that affects Iowa, Harris visits abortion clinics break a political barrier. And now here with the first story is Nicole. And we'll start with the meatpacking plant story here. Will Iowa lose more meatpacking plants? The pork industry woes leaves many people worried. This is from Donnell Eller of the Des Moines Register. Columbus Junction Mayor Mark Hudson understands how devastating Tyson Foods' decision to close its Perry plant is for the Dallas County's town of about 8,000. As in Perry, Tyson employs about 1,300 people in Hudson's eastern Iowa town. And also as in Perry, the Arkansas-based company is its biggest employer. Tyson, Hudson says, has an absolutely huge impact on our town. 
Losing the jobs would hurt even more in Columbus Junction, which has a quarter of Perry's population. Hudson says, "A town our size, there wouldn't be much we could do about it." And with the pork industry facing its harshest financial conditions in 25 years, meatpacking workers, city leaders, and others across the state worry that more of Iowa's 11 major processing plants could end up on the chopping block. The economic hit here in Iowa, the nation's largest pork producer, would be substantial. Food manufacturing contributes about nine billion dollars annually to the state's economy, and it employs nearly 61,000 workers, according to federal data. Are these worries justified? Well, meatpackers haven't been able to avoid high prices for corn, soy meal, and other feeds that have contributed to large losses for pork producers. This is from Lee Schultz, an Iowa State University livestock economist. Tyson reported $648 million in losses in its fiscal year that ended in September. This is compared to a $3.2 billion in profits in 2022. And Hong Kong-based WH Group, which owns Smithfield Foods, operator of several Iowa plants, said the U.S. and Mexico pork operations lost $551 million in the third quarter, compared to $85 million in profits a year earlier. Over the last year, Tyson says it would close eight older, less efficient U.S. chicken plants. And Tyson CEO Johnny King told analysts last month that the company would continue to right-sizing its operations, proceeding that the March 11 announcement that Tyson will close the Perry plant at the end of June to optimize efficiency. But Schultz and Steve Meyer, chief livestock economist at EverAg, it's a Texas-based agricultural technology company, risk management, and also market analysis company, said the financial picture is starting to improve for producers and packers. Tyson's fiscal 2024 first quarter, ending in December, showed a $107 million profit as operating income for its pork sector climbed to $39 million. That is compared to a $21 million loss a year earlier. Meyer says, "I don't think there are any other plants in danger at this point." He noted that in addition to Perry, pork plants in California and Minnesota had already been slated to close. Premium Iowa Pork, based in Northwest Iowa, has bought the Minnesota plant and says that it plans an announcement on its future in the spring. Even though those plants are small, their closures relieves the pressure to some degree. Meyer said. Huston says that he hasn't heard any rumblings that Tyson will shut down the Columbus Junction plant. The single shift facility processes 10,000 to 13,000 pigs daily, he said, and it's been going full bore. And he's not reassured, saying that it's un- it's unlikely that large corporations would share their plans widely. In Perry's case, Governor Kim Reynolds, Iowa's economic development staff, and city officials say they didn't get word of the shutdown plan until shortly before Tyson's public announcement. Huston says conditions change and company outlooks change. It is always a hazard. Meyer says that as a single shift plant, Perry was hamstrung. He says double shift plants have a lot of cost advantages, spreading a lot of fixed costs out over far more pigs. The 61-year-old Perry plant, initially operated by Oscar Mayer, had been remodeled, but because of its relatively limited size, he says it would have been hard to adapt to a double-shift plant. Tyson's Waterloo and Storm Lake pork plants, both with two shifts, are considered some of the most efficient in the country, Schultz says. 
Waterloo workers process about 17,250 hogs daily, and Storm Lake, 19,500. He says the Perry plant slaughters about 9,000 pigs daily. Schultz says the least efficient plants are the most vulnerable. In addition, newer competitors have also emerged. Prestige Foods opened a $350 million pork processing plant in 2019 near Eagle Grove in northwest Iowa, and Seaboard Foods started operating a $300 million plant in 2017 in Sioux City. While these new plants carry hefty price tags, they also offer size and labor-saving technology that add to their efficiency. Schultz says. Meyer says a new efficient plant that's aggressive can put competitive pressure on older plants. Not that the older plants aren't still pretty good. Despite the experts' optimistic outlook for Iowa plants, United Food and Commercial Workers official Mark Lauritsen says that he believes more are likely to close. He cited the industry's push to increase line speeds as a major factor. Lauritsen says if the USDA allows U.S. line speeds to go up, we are not going to need as many packing plants here in the Midwest. And Lauritsen is the director of the union's food processing, packaging, and manufacturing sector. He also says there is no way around it. The union has argued against the request, saying it's unsafe for workers. Companies, however, disagree, saying the higher speeds have been tested for years without increased danger. The USDA is allowing a few pork plants to slaughter more than 1,106 hogs each hour, and also assessing the impact on worker safety to determine whether the accelerated pace can be expanded. Lauritsen says that Tyson didn't have to close the Perry plant, given the number of pigs that need to be slaughtered this year. Experts say the U.S. will harvest about as many pigs as last year, even with companies shutting down saw operations. Oh, saw! Sorry, S-O-W saw operations, because of increased litter sizes are also offsetting efforts to reduce the herd. Lauritsen, whose union would negotiate severance packages for the Perry workers, said smaller single-shift plants like Columbus Junction cannot be in a safe position. Plants like West Point, Nebraska, cannot be in a safe position. He also says, "I wouldn't be comfortable if I was the mayor of a small town that had a small single-shift operation. There's a sort of damocles hanging over these communities, but it doesn't have to be that way." Whether the Perry plant closure turns out to be the only one in Iowa in the current downtown, the meatpacking industry has a volatile history, experiencing decades of booms, busts, and ownership changes. The Perry plant was built in response to the closure of a previous one, and it escaped a planned closure in 1988, only when a last-minute buyer emerged on Christmas Eve of that year. Ottumwa Mayor Rick Johnson recalled when John Morrell closed its pork plant in his southeastern Iowa City in 1973. Its population already had fallen from a peak of about 34,000 people in 1960, and for the closure, he said, impacted our community for several years. In 1976, Hormel opened a new pork plant in Ottumwa and operated it until 1987. Although Hormel struggled with extensive labor disputes, the Minnesota company blamed the closure of the plant on excess slaughter capacity in the industry. With the help of state incentives, the plant reopened that same year under Excel. It's a Cargill Inc.、Uh, in Cargill Inc. subsidiary that in turn sold the plant in 2015 to JBS SA. The Brazilian company, the world's largest meat packer, continues to operate the plant, and Atumwa's population has stabilized at around 25,000.
It is a similar story in Columbus Junction. Rath Packing Company opened the plant there in 1961 and then closed it in 1983. It then reopened two years later under IBP, formerly known as the Iowa Beef Processors, which merged with Tyson in 2001. Over the subsequent 23 years, the community's reliance on meatpacking jobs has grown," said Hudson. "The mayor's jobs has grown. Wait, sorry.、Um, Hudson, the mayor says that reliance on meatpacking jobs have grown. When the plant closed in the 1980s, about 250 people worked there. Employment is now about five times larger. He says IBP rebuilt the plant and then expanded it a bunch." JBS in Ottawa also is critical to that city's economy," said Johnson, who estimated employment is around 2,600. For rural Iowa towns lucky enough to have a large employer, losing those jobs is truly devastating," Johnson says. He also says you don't recover from that type of community loss overnight. Lawrenson says the industry's drive for efficiencies is hurting workers and communities. Corporate executives don't create profits; workers do, he says, and they need to be taken care of. He pointed out that Tyson didn't work with the city or state to try and find a farmer-owned group or other buyer for this Perry plant. He says they didn't want competition for hogs; they didn't want the competition for labor. The only answer was close it. And in a related story, a job fair is slated for Tyson plant workers. The first job fair for workers at the closing Tyson Foods plant in Perry will be held from 3 to 6 p.m. April 3 at the Hotel Patti on Willis Avenue in downtown Perry. A group of Perry leaders who have dubbed themselves the Perry Action Team has announced that job fair. Nearly 1,300 workers stand to lose their jobs when Arkansas-based Tyson closes the plant. On June 28, local, state, and regional officials are organizing a series of job fairs in April and May to help them find new employment, says the group, which includes the city administrator and representatives of business groups and the Des Moines Area Community College, as well as Perry Van Kirk Career Academy. I believe that Perry Van Kirk Career Academy is part of the Des Moines Area Community College. Employers looking for workers also are encouraged to participate," said the organizers, who asked that companies fill out an online survey. In addition to employers, representatives from Iowa Workforce Development, Des Moines Area Community College, and other organizations will be on hand to help workers land jobs, either by polishing their existing skills or exploring new training opportunities. More information about this and other upcoming job fairs will be available at the Perry Chamber of Commerce's Perry Strong site, which is that's a website, and you can find it at perryiachamber.org/perrystrong, created in the wake of fatal shootings at the Perry High School in January. Tyson said it will encourage Perry employees to apply for openings at its other plants. The company also said it will work with local and state officials to help workers find new jobs. The company also has Iowa pork processing plants in Storm Lake, Waterloo, and Columbus Junction, and employs 9,000 people statewide. Now I'm going to read some.、Uh, Phone numbers, and I think they're all phone numbers. Yeah, they're、uh, phone numbers that you can contact if you have questions. You can call Des Moines Area Community College at five one five four two eight eight one zero zero. You can contact Perry City Hall at five one five four six five two four eight one, or you can contact the Perry Chamber of Commerce at five one five. 
465-465-4601. Now back to the front page. Here's Nicole. The next story is that Iowa poll, it's a register exclusive since 1943, 73% of pollsters back in-state tuition constrained. Majority favor requiring legal presence here in the U.S. This is from F. Amanda Tuggate of the Des Moines Register. Nearly three-fourths of Iowans support legislation that would require students to be U.S. citizens or lawfully present for them to qualify for in-state tuition. This is according to a new Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll. 73% of Iowans say they favor such a measure, 23% oppose the idea, 4% not sure. House filed 2320, which would have required the state's public universities to adopt new rules barring students from receiving in-state tuition rates if they are not U.S. citizens or are not lawfully present in the United States. It was introduced this session, but it was not clear but did not clear a legislative hurdle last week for continued consideration. This Iowa poll conducted by Seltzer and Company surveyed 804 Iowans from February 25th to the 27th and has a margin of error of plus and minus 3.5 percentage points. A strong majority of those who self-identify as Republicans back the bill, that's 88% of them according to the poll. A smaller majority of Democrats support it at 52%. 71% of Iowans who identify as independents also favor this measure. Joshua Peterson, it's a Republican from Des Moines, believes it's only fair for in-state tuitions to be awarded to students who are U.S. citizens or live legally here in the U.S. Peterson is 41 years old, and they said it takes a little bit away from some of the people that work hard for it and deserve it. People just come in, and then the next thing you know, they're being put on the back burner. Lifelong Democrat Rod Miller also thinks the citizenship or legal residency requirement is fair. Miller, who said he previously worked for the U.S. Department of Education, said that the undocumented students may find themselves ineligible for federal student aid or other grants to offset costs for school. Miller, 77 years old of Bellevue, says that I think we've paid our taxes long enough. We're more or less earned our dues. I really do think that they should pay out-of-state tuition. If they have a green card, that might be a different story. But other Democrats who responded to the poll and participated in follow-up interviews opposed the bill. Kathy Bell, 75 years old from Atlantic, said the bill promotes fearful, hateful rhetoric against immigrants. It talks about immigrants as if they're lower class, she says. Griner, 76, of Iowa Falls, agreed. What they're saying is, don't come here unless you're a citizen, she says. Griner says that what bothers her the most is the state's recent efforts in attacking students' access to education and then blames the Republicans' agenda. From banning books to promoting school choice, Griner says that these initiatives hinder students from bettering themselves. Echoing Griner's sentiments, Bell, um, Bell emphasized, who's Bell? I don't know, they are like popping in random last names here, but there's a person named Bell that emphasized that students, regardless of their citizenship, should be able to receive an education. They said they should be able to go to school in the state. A little more about this Iowa poll. Again, it's by Seltzer and Company. They interviewed 804 people ages 18 and older. Researchers called households with randomly selected landline and cell phone numbers that supplied by another company. The interviews were administered in English. The responses were adjusted by age, sex, and congressional district to reflect the general population based on the recent American Community Survey estimates. 
As I mentioned earlier, the margin of error, three and a half points percentage, plus or minus, that means that if this survey were to be repeated using the same questions and the same methodology, 19 times out of 20, the findings would not really vary from the true population value by more than plus or minus three and a half percentage points. Republishing the copyright I will pull without credit and on digital platforms, links to originating content on the Des Moines Register and Mediacom is not allowed. Harris's visit to an abortion clinic breaks a political barrier. This article is out of St. Paul, Minnesota, and it's from the USA Today Network. But it does uh, refer to the Planned Parenthood organization that is uh, Iowa is uh, that covers Iowa as well. These are not words politicians use, but Vice President Kamala Harris, already a historic figure, went there when she broke a political barrier by touring a Minnesota-based Planned Parenthood clinic. Here's what she said. Everyone gets ready for the language. Harris, uh, the first female vice president, warned. Here's what she said. Uterus. The crowd broke into laughter. That part of the body needs a lot of medical care from time to time, Harris said. Issues like fibroids, muscular tumors that grow in the wall of a woman's uterus, must no longer be taboo, she said. We can handle this. Decades ago, it might have made them squirm or denounce it as vulgar. The 59-year-old Democrat stood in front of a bank of microphones and went into detail about the many services Planned Parenthood provides that are unrelated to abortion. Harris's decision to visit the clinic and her public use of medical terms for the human reproductive system were the clearest sign yet of how much America's abortion debate has been scrambled ahead of the 2024 election. The decision by the most powerful woman in elected office in the U.S. was a remarkable departure for Democrats who have historically kept abortion providers at arm's length and the public seems ready for it. For Paige Robinson, a 22-year-old University of Minnesota student, abortion is a key issue she'll be considering when she votes this fall. Harris's visit, she told USA Today, does show a very clear stance from the administration on their support of it, which is a strong thing to do, she said. Experts and activists said Thursday's trip further reflects how the Supreme Court's 2022 decision overturning Roe v. Wade threw out the old rules around abortion. It's both unprecedented and unsurprising given the earthquake of the Dobbs decision, said Matthew Dalek, a political historian at George Washington University. Others say this moment also showcases Harris's expanding role as the Biden campaign's progressive crusader-in-chief on social issues. On the trail, she has been urgent about women's health being in crisis as a part of her, quote, fight for reproductive freedom, freedoms, end quote, tour, which concluded in Minnesota last week after previous stops in battleground states such as Wisconsin, Georgia, Michigan, and Arizona. An exclusive USA Today Suffolk University poll released this week underscores one reason why Harris is running toward the abortion issue. The vice president is already well-liked among fellow Democrats, particularly Democratic women who give her a 78% job approval rating. The survey shows that a high rating for her. Her popularity nosedives, however, when she tiptoes outside the party's tent. Roughly 54% of all respondents, for instance, say she is not qualified to serve as president versus 38% who believe she has what it takes. 
That gap shrinks a bit when measured against the views of independent women who have been at odds with Republicans on reproductive rights. The poll shows 45% of independent women think Harris is not qualified to be president, compared to 40% who think she is qualified. Outside of core Democratic voters, she has an opportunity to flip independent women into positive territory. She's negative there, but it's close, said David Palian Logos, director of the Suffolk University Political Research Center. When compared to all voters, Harris gets slightly higher marks with women who do not belong to either party on job approval and favorability, the survey finds. Among all respondents, Harris has a net negative 16% rating in both the job she's doing as vice president and her popularity. But with independent women, that drops to a negative of only 5% on approval. On favorability, the net negative with independent women is 15% with the larger group of 9% still undecided. Pelion Logos said the vice president's failure to gain traction with other constituencies matters at a time when there are legitimate concerns by voters surrounding Biden's age and inability to serve. He said that means her role and that of Trump's eventual running mate will be magnified in the coming months. The fact that she can't really add to the Biden equation for November statistically is a problem and it's a concern, he said. They are aligned and very popular within the Democratic Party, but it's questionable among independents, and they're going to get nothing among Republicans, he added. Speaking to a crowd of more than 100 supporters at a rally in St. Paul, Harris praised what Minnesota Democrats had accomplished by fortifying women's health care access. She also hinted at her hopes about what they could mean for the national elections in November, such as Congress eventually codifying Roe into law. So the victory that you all have wanted to, particularly in the State House, have once again demonstrated to our nation just how much progress a democratic trifecta can make, Harris said. When she refers to the trifecta, I believe she's referring to the governor's office and both houses of the state legislature. The vice president did not mince words when drawing out the choice voters have this fall, saying Americans should, in her words, all recognize who is to blame for the patchwork of laws. The former president, Donald Trump, handpicked three members of the United States Supreme Court with the intention that they would overturn Roe, she said. He intended for them to take away your freedoms, and it is a decision he brags about, she added. Mimi Tamaraju, president of Reproductive Freedom for All, formerly known as NARAL Pro-Choice America, said going to a clinic distinguished Harris as someone who could talk to an, to an experience all women share. This has become the most reproductive freedom-forward administration in the history of the country, and much respect and affection for Joe Biden, but that would not be happening without Kamala Harris being the tip of the spear, she said. Polling has consistently shown Americans broadly support some level of access to abortion rights. An Associated Press Norick Center for Public Affairs Research Survey last year, for instance, found 64% of adults think it should be legal in at least some circumstances. All right, turning to the Metro and Iowa section now, there's um, a few stories, but because you're talking about reproductive rights, I'll start with the story up top that says, study contraception access declines, availability linked to abortion laws. This is from Michaela Ram of the Des Moines Register. 
New research has found contraceptive access in Iowa was negatively affected after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Since the 2022 decision, women in Iowa and in three other states saw an overall decline in access to contraceptives and then reported a drop in the quality of the care that they did receive. This is according to a new study from the Gut Man. Gutmaker Institute. It's a research nonprofit that supports legal access to abortion and contraceptives. According to researchers behind the study, access to abortion and other types of reproductive health care, including birth control, go hand in hand. When the U.S. Supreme Court opened the door to states to enact restrictions on abortion within their jurisdiction, it also had its consequences on other health care. Uh, Megan Cavanaugh, co-author of the study and principal research scientist at that company, says that we interpret these findings as demonstrating that the sexual and reproductive healthcare system is really being constrained in its ability to meet people's broad sexual and reproductive healthcare needs. So what did this study find? In June of 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the U.S. Constitution does not guarantee a right to an abortion, overturning the landmark Roe v. Wade case that established the right five decades ago. Researchers surveyed women ages 18 to 44 years old in Iowa, Arizona, New Jersey, and Wisconsin. The first survey took place in 2021, before the U.S. Supreme Court's decision. The second survey took place shortly after that decision in 2022. Overall, survey respondents in all four states did see a decline in the number of women who received contraceptive care recently. According to the study, the percent of Iowans who reported delays or trouble accessing their preferred contraceptive method went up from 7% to 10% after this decision. Kavanaugh added that the survey results don't indicate that, for the most part, women have not changed their preferred birth control method in light of recent events. Among those who were able to access care, survey respondents reported that they believe the quality of care has decreased. In Iowa, the percentage of women who reported receiving high-quality care dropped from 58% in 2021 to 48% in 2022. At the same time, researchers noted that the patient's use of condoms increased during this time period. Kavanaugh says this might be one flag indicating that people are now having more trouble accessing contraceptive methods that do require interaction with a healthcare provider. The three other states included in the study saw similar results, indicating the challenges are not unique to Iowa. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, nearly two dozen states have now enacted bans or further restrictions on abortion. Another handful of states, including Iowa, have approved bans but are awaiting decisions from the courts to determine whether the restrictions will go into effect. Because of these restrictions, Kavanaugh said, healthcare centers that provide abortion may be forced to close or otherwise restrict their services. That in turn cuts off access to women who are seeking contraceptive care and otherwise creates long wait times at clinics that, main, that remain open. Kavanaugh says that some patients are traveling to healthcare centers in states that don't have restrictions in place, which puts greater strain on existing resources. As a result, women in states can experience more issues in accessing the health center. The results also come years after Iowa redrafted a safety net program that provides family planning services, including birth control, to low- and moderate-income Iowans. State officials opted to end participation in a federal program, instead creating a state-run family planning program that explicitly bars abortion providers, such as Planned Parenthood, from participating. Now, since that shift in 2017, participation in that program dropped 83 percent, according to state data.
At the same time, the state program has paid for fewer family planning services in Iowa, such as birth control, routine exams, and also testing for STDs, among other sexual and reproductive health services. One of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' longtime proposals would make birth control available to Iowans without a prescription. Under her bill, Iowans aged 18 and older could buy birth control pills, birth control patches, and vaginal rings at local pharmacies without first seeing a doctor. A March Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll found that 79% of Iowans do support making birth control pills available without prescription in the state. 19% opposed the idea, 3% not sure. Despite the support from most Iowans, the proposal has split Republicans at the legislature. A bill on this measure failed to advance before a legislative deadline. Abortion is currently legal here in the state up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. Last year, the governor signed a bill into law dubbed by Republicans as the fetal heartbeat law that would ban nearly all abortions after a cardiac activity is detected. Doctors say that fetal cardiac activity can usually be detected starting at about six weeks of pregnancy. The law does include narrow exceptions for rape, incest, fatal fetal abnormalities, and to preserve the life of the pregnant person in cases of a medical emergency. Enforcement of that law has been temporarily blocked by a Polk County District Court judge until a legal challenge over this ban is settled. The Iowa Supreme Court is expected to issue a decision on this issue on whether it should be allowed to go into effect by June of this year. A 2.2% dip is expected in state revenue. Iowa's revenue panel said Friday the state will see less money flowing in 2024, citing tax cuts effect and setting the stage for lawmakers to make key decisions on the upcoming budget. The three-member Revenue Estimating Conference forecasted that Iowa will take in about $9.63 billion in fiscal year 2024, which ends on June 30th of this year. That represents a 2.2% decrease from last fiscal year and a slight downtick from the panel's December projections. In fiscal year 2025, which begins July 1 of this year, the panel projected a 0.7% increase from 2024 and, after extended debate, agreed on a projected 1% growth decrease in fiscal year 2026. Craig Paulson, the director of the Iowa Department of Management, said organic growth in the economy continues to make up for a dip in revenue resulting from Republican-led income tax cuts passed in 2022. He said the state was in what he called an incredibly strong financial position. As GOP legislative majorities and Governor Kim Reynolds signaled a a desire to further cut income taxes, Paulson said he believed the state's revenues could accommodate. The spending discipline that has been displayed over the last few years, so I'm assuming that continues, really puts the taxpayer at the forefront and provides an opportunity to continue to look at reductions, Paulson said. The new projections come as lawmakers prepare to build out Iowa's annual budget, heading into negotiations with the state, continuing to hold a budget surplus.
Both Reynolds and prominent lawmakers have introduced plans to further cut income taxes, citing that surplus. The governor's plan would accelerate existing gradual cuts and bring Iowa's rate down to a flat tax of 3.65 percent in 2024. Another proposal from Republican tax writing chairs would eventually eliminate Iowa's income tax entirely. Iowa is a national leader in maintaining fiscal discipline, rewarding work and investment by reducing income taxes and cutting needless bureaucracy, Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer, a Republican of Grimes, said in a statement on Friday. Whitfer told reporters Thursday that although additional tax cuts were not absolutely required, he believed Republicans could move forward on them. Nothing needs to happen because we've done such great work over the last few years, but I think we have a real opportunity to expedite some of those cuts that we've made in the last couple of years, he said. Democrats argue that the state's surplus is an opportunity to further invest in areas of need, including education, and have criticized Republicans for delays in setting the annual school funding level. Republicans have been very behind on getting numbers to school, said House Minority Leader Jennifer Confrist, a Democrat of Windsor Heights. She said that on Thursday. She went on to say that's the budget part that should be solved first, and it has not been, so we're kind of flying blind. Senator Janet Peterson, a Des Moines uh, Democrat, criticized Republicans' budget process as having what she called no meaningful accountability, transparency, or action. She went on to say, We owe it to our constituents to fund our public schools, pass a balanced and responsible state budget, and then adjourn for the year. Iowans are not asking for more politics and culture wars. They're asking for a government that does its job, said Peterson. Before we move on to the next story, I want to share actually a positive piece that's in front of the Metro and Iowa section. There's a large photo essay. You may remember yesterday and this weekend was a fun St. Patrick's Day weekend in central Iowa. You know, Des Moines always goes all out for that. So this photo essay celebrates all things Irish. The Friendly Sons of St. Patrick of central Iowa kicked off the Des Moines Metro's St. Patrick's Day celebrations a day early. That's on Saturday. Hosting their own annual parade, the Royal Travel from the East Village to downtown Des Moines. There's a large image of uh, a parade float. A float from Carl's Place drives by during the St. Patrick's Day Parade on Grand Avenue. You can see a lot of spectators and hoodies. It was a little chilly that day. It was windy as well. A lot of folks lining the side of the streets as that parade float went by. Another image is of a little girl coming out of a limousine window with lots of St. Patty's Day decoration holding an Irish flag. Um, She is also part of the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And finally, there's another image of a group of dancers. They're from the Fourth School of Traditional Irish Dance. They performed during the parade as well. So a lot of fun celebrations over the weekend. Of course, the block parties. They know how to party here in Des Moines. I'm going to read a quick little short story, and then we'll turn things back to Twilight to finish out the section. With spring come more bugs and other critters. But there are things that you can do to lessen those risks. This is from Kate Keeley of the Des Moines Register. All the perks of warm weather come at a cost, the return of critters. As temperatures rise, here is a list of animals and insects that reawaken during the springtime, and it could cause you problems in Iowa. So, first thing is ants. Wrap up your fruits and sweet treats, and Iowa's springtime is sure to bring ants. House ants also are attracted to water, and they are often entering the house through the bathroom or kitchen sinks, according to Terminex. 
Next, multicolored Asian lady beetle. You're probably thinking, what gives? It seems like ladybugs were active in the fall. That's because in the spring, ladybugs are coming out of hibernating, making it a common time for infestations. In the fall, they are drawn to warmth, and the ones you're starting to see now are the same ones you couldn't kill in the fall, according to Iowa State University. So take comfort in the fact that these spotted bugs don't breed in homes. Light traps are recommended for catching them. This one sounds funny. Stink bug. There are multiple species of stink bugs. The brown marmorated stink bug is an invasive species to the state and North America. After spending winter months hiding, these bugs often reoccur during March through September, according to Orkin. Closing all cracks and gaps in households while keeping screens and windows properly sealed will prevent the odorous insect from infiltrating your home. Next, raccoons. It seems as though trash pandas <laughs> are always running around in the cover of darkness, regardless of the season. But spring makes for the ideal repopulation time. Raccoon mating occurs from January to June, with the major of the babies being born in April and May. This is according to Wildlife Rescue League. They eat anything from berries to vegetables to eggs to grasses. Iowa has seen an increase of complaints about raccoons, and some have even disturbed agricultural operations, resulting in open season hunting for them. Actually, I did see a raccoon on my way to work on Kiowa the other day. It's in the city that is so bizarre, and it was my first time seeing a raccoon, so it's totally happening. And the last thing that you may see this springtime is snakes. There are 28 species of snakes in Iowa, according to the Iowa State University Extension and Outreach. Naturally, the cold-blooded species. Conclude the hibernation as temperatures increase, but don't worry. Only four of the 28 Iowa snakes are considered dangerous to pets and humans. The most common snake in the state is the garter, with a thin yellow stripe down its neck. To avoid running into these backyard serpents, keep your lawn short and remove any wood piles and debris. Only four of 28 that you have to be afraid of. Well, I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one that's seeing ladybugs in my in my house. And we'll wrap up the Metro and Iowa section with this story: Iowa Native and other women sue the NCAA over trans policy. A former Carlisle High School track and soccer standout is among the plaintiffs in a new lawsuit challenging NCAA rules permitting the transgender athletes to compete in collegiate sports. Ainsley Erzin set the Iowa record in 800 meters and won a national track title in 2022, the first Iowa woman to do so. After graduating that year, she enrolled at the University of Arkansas, where she has continued competing in both track and soccer. On Thursday, she was among, among more than a dozen female athletes to file suit against the NCAA, several Georgia universities, and numerous officials from both institutions. The women allege that the NCAA, in pursuit of what the suit called a radical anti-woman agenda, has enacted rules allowing transgender women with substantial biological advantages in strength and speed to unfairly compete in women's sports. It's not the first time Ertzen had spoken up on this issue. She wrote to the Iowa girls, 
<coughs> excuse me. She wrote to the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union in 2022, arguing that collegiate sports need to remain segregated by biological sex, a letter that was published as a guest column in the Des Moines Register. When Governor Kim Reynolds that year signed a law banning transgender females from playing in female sports in Iowa, Ertzen was one of the athletes who joined her at the bill signing. The lawsuit, filed in federal court in Georgia, accuses the NCAA and individual schools of violating the U.S. Constitution and the Title IX federal anti-discrimination law. The plaintiffs asked the court to force the NCAA to amend its rules, invalidate any prior awards, titles, or other recognition won by athletes they believe should have been ineligible, and award damages for the alleged violation of their rights. Ertz and her, and her family did not respond to a request for comment. The lead plaintiff in the case is Riley Gaines, a former University of Kentucky swimmer and activist who has advocated, including at a fundraiser for Reynolds in Iowa, against what she views as radical transgender ideology, such as inclusion of trans women in women's sports. She came to prominence after vocally protesting a 2022 NCAA championship contest where she tied for fifth with a transgender athlete in a 200-yard freestyle. Much of Thursday's lawsuit revolves around the 2022 competition, including the claims against officials in Georgia which hosted the event. Gaines and other plaintiffs protest not only the participation of transgender competitors, but that they were forced to share locker and shower facilities. Under NCAA rules, trans women can compete in women's sports if they have undergone testosterone suppression treatments and if their blood testosterone level falls below set limits. The plaintiffs disagree that, as they put it, Testosterone suppression and personal choice alone can make a male eligible to compete in a women's sports team. And they further argue that even under that framework, the NCAA's testosterone thresholds are too high, as much as five times more than women's bodies can produce naturally. Unlike Gaines and some of the other plaintiffs, Ertzen does not allege she has competed against any trans women athletes, let alone lost potential trophies or other awards to them. Instead, the lawsuit lists several trans women around the country who compete or are expected to compete in collegiate track and soccer and notes that Ertzen and similarly positioned students, quoting now from the suit, have reasonable concerns they will be required to compete against biological males. That's the end of the quote from the suit. In addition to any competitive disadvantage, the complaint alleges Ertzen and others face what are called increased risk of injury, as well as the possibility of privacy violations in locker rooms and showers, and asks the court to block the NCAA from continuing its current eligibility rules for trans athletes. In her 2022 letter published in the Register, Ertzen argued men and women compete on an inherently uneven playing field. The state record time she set the eight, uh, in the 800 meters, she wrote, was bested by 85 high school boys at one Iowa track meet alone. Even at the highest levels of sports, female stars in track, tennis, and soccer fall short of the level of performance their male counterparts can achieve. An elite male college runner will beat an elite female college runner every single time, 
Ertzen wrote, encouraging the athletic union to what she said, stop asking others to do your job for you and be bold enough and brave enough to stand up for the hundreds of girls who rely on you to be able to continue to do what they love. That's the end of the quote from Ertzen's letter to the register. Back to the main section of the Des Moines Register, Voyager 1 may re-establish contact following Poke. The mission of one of NASA's twin Voyager space probes had been in per- peril for months as the space agency has been unable to receive usable data from the craft launched 46 years ago to explore the far reaches of the cosmos. But a recent poke sent to Voyager 1 as it travels 15.1 billion miles away from Earth has given engineers a reason for optimism when they received a, re- a response earlier in March. Mission Control proded Voyager 1 and received a new signal on March 3rd that they began working furiously to decode days later. By March 10th, ooh, excuse me. By March 10th, the team determined that what they had was a memory readout, which may contain valuable data to allow them to restore regular communications with Voyager 1, according to NASA. The pioneering probe has continuously defied expectations for its lifespan as it ventures further into uncharted territories of the cosmos. NASA had hoped that Voyager 1's extended mission will allow the spacecraft to beam back valuable data through 2025. But a communication breakdown in November put that goal in peril. Voyager 1 has never ceased sending a steady radio signal to ground control operators on Earth, but that signal has not carried any usable data since November, according to NASA. Instead, the probe's telemetry modulation unit started sending a nonsensical repeating pattern of code. The space agency traced the source of that communication breakdown to one of the spacecraft's three onboard computers, known as the Flight Data Subsystem, which is responsible for packaging the science and engineering data before it is beamed onto Earth. In order to figure out what's going on, Mission Control has sent a poke on March 1st, commissioning Voyager, or commanding rather Voyager 1's Flight Data Subsystem to run different sequences in case the software corruption was causing the issue. Within two days, NASA got the response for which it hoped for. On March 3rd, the Voyager mission team noticed the activity from one section of the flight data subsystem was different from the rest of the computer's unreadable data stream. But because it wasn't in the format used by Voyager 1 when it's properly sending data, the team was confused. The array of giant radio network antennas known as the Deep Space Network that communicates with both Voyager probes decoded the signal and found that it contained a readout of the subsystem's entire memory, its coding as well as the science and engineering data it collected, the discovered readout provided an opportunity for the team to analyze it for discrepancies in the code that could have caused the ongoing issue. Netanyahu rails against U.S. criticism. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday denied claims that he is an obstacle to peace in Gaza and dismissed as what he called totally inappropriate Senator Chuck Schumer's call for Israelis to hold elections to vote Netanyahu from power. It is inappropriate to go to a sister democracy and try to replace the elected leadership, Netanyahu said in an interview on CNN's State of the Union. That is something the Israeli public does on its own. We are not a banana republic, he said.
Netanyahu said the only government Israel and the U.S. should be working to bring down now is Hamas, what he called Hamas tyranny that murdered over a thousand Israelis and dozens of Americans during the October 7 attack on Israeli border communities that killed 1,200 people and left another 250 hostage. Netanyahu said Israel will keep trying to secure a deal that would see the release of hostages in exchange for a six-week pause in fighting. Hamas is demanding an end to the war and the withdrawal of Israeli troops from Gaza. Netanyahu also stressed what polls in Israel have consistently indicated, namely that Israelis support the war and even the plan to storm the crowded city of Rafah to destroy what the Israeli military say are the last remaining Hamas battalions. This is a wake-up call to Senator Schumer, Netanyahu said. It's not a fringe government. It represents the policies supported by the majority of the people. If Senator Schumer opposes these policies, he is not opposing me. He is opposing the people of Israel, said Netanyahu. The prime minister said the offensive in Rafah could take several weeks. The Biden administration and most world leaders have urged Netanyahu to abandon the plan, saying too many civilians would be killed. Excuse me. Meanwhile, airdrops by the U.S. and other nations continue in Gaza, while deliveries on a (coughs) excuse me while deliveries on a new sea route have begun. But aid groups say more ground routes and fewer Israeli restrictions on them are needed to meet humanitarian needs in any significant way. The Gaza Health Ministry said at least 31,645 Palestinians have been killed in the war. The ministry does not differentiate between civilians and combatants in its count, but says women and children make up two-thirds of the dead. The health ministry on Sunday said that the bodies of 92 people killed in Israel's bombardment had been brought to hospitals in Gaza in the previous 24 hours. Hospitals also received 130 wounded, it said. At least 11 people from the Tabat family, including five children and one woman, were killed in an airstrike in Deir al-Bala city in central Gaza, according to the Palestinian Red Crescent Society and an Associated Press journalist. The body of an infant lay among the dead. Israeli airstrikes hit several sites in southern Syria early Sunday, wounding a soldier, Syrian state media reported. State news agency SANA, that's an acronym, S-A-N-A, citing an unnamed military official, said air defenses shot down some of the missiles, which came from the direction of the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights at around 12.42 a.m. local time. The strikes led to what were called material losses and the wounding of a soldier, the statement said. The Britain-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, an opposition war monitor, said Israeli strikes also hit two military sites in the Kuala Moon Mountains, northeast of Damascus, an area where the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah has operations. One of the targets was a weapons shipment, the observatory said. The observatory said the strikes represented the 24th time Israel had struck inside Syria since the beginning of 2024. They have killed 43 fighters with various groups, including Hezbollah and Iran's paramilitary Revolutionary Guard, and nine civilians.
There was no immediate statement from Israeli officials on the strikes. Israel frequently launches strikes on Iran-linked targets in Syria, but rarely acknowledges them. The strikes have escalated over the past five months against a backdrop of the war in Gaza and ongoing clashes between Hezbollah and Israeli forces on the Lebanon-Israel border. The European Union on Sunday announced a 7.4 billion euro aid package that would be equivalent to about $8 billion. That aid package was for cash-strapped Egypt. Let me say that again. That aid package is destined to cash-strapped Egypt as concerns mount that economic pressure and conflicts in neighboring countries could drive more migrants to European shores. The deal comes amid growing concerns that Israel looming ground offensive on Rafah, Gaza's southernmost town, could force hundreds of thousands of people to break into Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. The Israeli-Hamas war, now in its sixth month, has pushed more than one million people into Rafah. The deal, which drew criticism from rights groups over Egypt's human rights record, was signed Sunday afternoon in Cairo in a ceremony intended by Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. European Commissioner President European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and leaders of Belgium, Italy, Austria, Cyprus, and Greece. The deal, known as the Joint Declaration, aims, among other things, to promote what are called democracy, fundamental freedoms, human rights, and gender equality, according to the European Commission. Both sides will also deepen their cooperation to address challenges relating to migration and terrorism. A proposed Israeli law designed to help reservists returning to their studies by providing automatic passing grades violates academic independence and should be altered, the heads of Israel's leading university said in a letter to the Knesset Education Committee. The law would require universities to grant a certain number of passing grades on exams and courses to returning reservists, along with some automatic academic credits. Other benefits, including financial grants, depend on the duration and type of reserve duty, with more benefits going to those who served the longest in combat units, according to the Times of Israel. Final story before birthdays, researchers cast doubt on maternal death surge. For years, physicians and public health officials have been flummoxed and also embarrassed by alarming statistics that show the U.S. maternal death rate surging over two decades, far outpacing rates in other wealthy nations. Now, a team of researchers, including those at Rutgers Health, says the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has sharply overstated the maternal death. The rate is actually in line with similar nations, according to a study published on Tuesday in the American Journal of uh, Ops, uh, OB, OBGYN. Cade Aneth, the chief of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and senior author of the study, says it's important to set the record straight. Officials' estimates show that maternal death rates nearly doubling between 2018 and 2021, which clearly hasn't happened. Still, many media outlets have reported these figures as correct. A CDC press officer did not immediately respond to a request for comment. A USA Today analysis of data ranked New Jersey fifth worst in the country with 36.2 um, 
Wait, I lost track of where. Maternal deaths per 100,000 births from 2012 to 2016. It ranked number 14 a few years later, with the maternal death rate of 24.1 per 100,000 births from 2018 to 2020. This is from the Kaiser Family Foundation. But the statistics may be far off, according to this study. Maternal death rates nearly tripled over the last two decades, and it surged in recent years to 32.9 deaths per 100,000 live births in 2021, and up to 17.4 in 2028 and 12.7 in 2007, according to the CDC reports. The new study says the U.S. rate is actually slightly more than 10 maternal deaths per 100 live births. And I'll go a couple more paragraphs, and then we can move on to birthdays.、Um, despite the better outcomes overall, the researchers still found a wide racial gap. Black women still had the highest maternal death rate at 23.8 per 100,000 live births from 2018 to 2021. These racial gaps are persistent in New Jersey, where black women lead the state in maternal death rate among the OBG or obstetric hemorrhage and hypertension during childbirth. 